welcome to the Crazy Bird podcast. I'm your host, Violeta Kaminska, and today we are here with a wonderful guest, Graham Plum. Hi, Graham. How are you? Hello, Violeta. Good to be here. Great to have you here. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah, that, 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 I would recognize that as my name. Yeah, thank okay. you. Okay. okay, as long as you can recognize your name. That's good. All right, so let me introduce you to our listeners, and then I'm going to come back to you and ask you a few questions. Graham is a British-born, San Francisco-based experience designer, artist, and assistant professor at the California College of the Arts, where he teaches interaction design. Formerly creative director of Snibby Interactive and senior interaction designer for Ralph Applebaum Associates for both the London and New York offices, he has helped produce over 200 interactive exhibits for museums, hospitals, retail spaces, technology corporations, musicians, and artists. His exhibits and interactive spaces combine technology with architecture to produce immersive experiences that encourage playful experimentation, collaborative problem solving, or quiet moments of contemplation. As a teacher, Graham encourages his students to think beyond their definitions of interaction shaped by their use of smartphones, helping them to design interfaces that feel like natural extensions of the human body. In his practice making art, Graham combines analog materials with digital technology to produce new mediums for storytelling. These digital physical hybrid objects often include some form of illusion, so people have to question what they are seeing. For Graham, information technology is a material that can be crafted to work in synthesis with the everyday materials we are used to touching and handling. By combining atoms with bytes, he believes we can make products that feel more human and use technology to make art that interprets our humanity. Welcome to the Crazy Bird podcast. Uh, there are a few keywords. I call them keywords. I, I just like, I think it's the design lingo, the keywords. <laughs> There's technology, obviously, immersive experiences, and my favorite, quiet moments of contemplation. And really something that I really appreciate more and more, actually, even when I teach, is combining analog materials with digital technology. So there's a lot you do, and there's a lot that is very close to my heart, I wouldn't say. And of course, storytelling. And I'm really impressed. Over 200 interactive exhibits for museums, hospitals, retail spaces, technology corporations, musicians, and artists. Sounds like you are a very busy person, Graham. Is that true? I guess, yeah, I'm exhausting myself just listening to that. Um, yeah, I mean, I will say that of those 200 installations, some of them were the same kind of platform. So sometimes I design, like, for example, a type of interactive table, and then that has gone out to multiple museums or mm -hmm. different kinds of clients. So it's not 200 unique exhibits, but often the experience is unique, I guess. So, yeah, the, what, what happens on, on that interactive table? So I met you at the California College of the Arts. I think you were a guest speaker. You were invited as a guest for my interaction class. My memory only goes back about five years, I think, um, yeah. maybe. But uh, I think it was beyond that. Yeah, about, it was about six years ago. And yeah, it was probably while I was working with Snibby, uh, Scott Snibby. But I, I, to be honest, remember what I talked about. But I remember meeting you and I remember I wanted to talk to you and actually I did talk to you. You were very kind. So that's good. You were very kind and you agreed to meet with me at CCA. I was about to graduate with my MFA in design and I was just wondering what's next. Yeah, I was so interested in video and 
design, but I, I just I was trying to figure out how I can combine art and design. That wasn't really something uh, I had no idea where I was heading with my interests and passion and then the degree so that I had a very interesting I remember conversation with you and yeah and that's that's how I met you I remember that conversation because um, I remember you listened really really well and you asked really good questions and you really kept me on my toes so it was yeah it was a good conversation well I hope I will ask good questions now because we'll see <laughs> well anyway but now you teach at CCA how long have you been teaching at CCA? I think it's um, five and a half, six years. I think that I started in like the fall of 2015. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and that's interaction, right? Interaction yeah, it's always, it's always been uh, interaction design. I, I taught a little bit on the master's program, but it's mainly the undergraduate program. So yeah, I, I teach about four different t classes, depending on the semester. One of those is called Objects and Spaces. That's kind of my passion is for digital experiences that go beyond the sort of screen-based interfaces that we're, we're used to interacting mm -hmm. with. Graham, can you tell us what interaction design is? How would you define the term? Uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a, a hard and an easy question to answer. I, let me start with the easy one first then. So interaction design, simply put, is the design of products, systems, and spaces sometimes in which people interact with technology and so the design part of it is to make that experience work the way that humans think uh, so that it feels natural that's that's the simple way of putting it and so i guess i could end there and leave it at that right <laughs> um, but you said that there is a more complicated explanation yeah i so i i studied interaction design like 20 odd years ago right and it was before everything converged down to the mobile phone and uh, now you can interact uh, for hours on end across your touchscreen devices, right? And so I think that the way a lot of students tend to come to interaction design is through this filter of their previous experience. Of course they would, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what I guess the, the advantage of, let's say it's kind of an advantage of not having that experience is that I was kind of there before the mobile phone happened. And so the concept of interaction is actually more powerful and more, more potent, more creative mm -hmm. than the ways we are experiencing it now. So there's, you know, there are five big companies that are dominating this space and our interactions are largely defined by quite a narrow range of technologies. So an interaction is, is, is what we do amongst ourselves with other people all of the time, right? Um, and the way I, I mean, people can't see me now, but I'm using my hands to gesticulate and express myself. And I'm using my voice to modulating my voice to help myself be understood. Uh, our cell phones are extremely dumb in a way because all they can understand are taps on a piece of glass or slides of our fingers. And so I've always thought that there is this mismatch between human capability and what technology is capable of sensing and listening. And if that imbalance remains, what it means is that we have to work really, really hard to communicate with our devices and with each other through our devices. That's why I say when interaction design is a hard thing to define, I go back to that basic problem of interactions not being at that level at which I interact on a regular day. So it, yeah, it, it opens up a whole vista of possibilities if you think that way.
So interaction design and screens, obviously, but I, I just, you know, when I was introducing you, your bio says very clearly that you try to encourage students. And also, I think you combine that in your work, you, you're working between, you combine analog materials with digital technology. And my question to you is, has it always been interaction design for you? No, no, it's, it's not. It's not always been um, design even. Uh, so I, um, I thought I was going to be a painter when I was probably in my 20s, but it turned out I was really terrible at it. Um, my paintings really sucked. <laughs> I was slightly better at sculpture. Um, I could somehow get on better with physical materials and I just like putting things together and sort of standing back and interpreting them. And so, yeah, I, I studied fine art, but then back then, uh, it's probably changed since then, but when you graduated from studying fine art, there really wasn't much of a career path laid out for you. So I, I wandered accidentally into this world of being a freelance model maker. Um, so we're talking about like the kind of the late nineties in London. Um, and I guess that was another education and it was, it was a really exciting time to be working with designers and architects because as a model maker, you get this perspective that, um, maybe the people working in the design office don't necessarily get you get, but you get a really good behind the scenes view of how designers think, how they create. So yeah, I kind of learned the craft of thinking my way around problems with my hands. And, and my imagination. So really, I think a lot through my hands. And, and so I think that's where this kind of interest in bringing the physical to the digital come, mm -hmm. sort of originated. So did you learn at that time also different kinds of software? Because I, I can't imagine that you, know, you were using much of software. This was mostly hands, right? Model making using hands? Or did you use software too? Well, it's funny. I, f I found out years later that my fine art school, which was Canterbury Art School in England, they had the first issue, the first versions of Photoshop and Illustrator, but the, the professor that kind of had control over this equipment didn't let anybody know because he didn't want the headache of students coming to him to ask how to use it. Right. So, so I did have a, well, that's I mean, an interesting, that's an interesting method. Maybe I can use it in my teaching. <laughs> I'll keep it to myself, all the digital tools. Good stuff to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of missed that opportunity. I did actually, I did do a little bit of animation and, and film, but, um, uh, that was as far as it went, but I didn't really know that there was this thing called interaction design to many, many years later. I remember it was 1998, I think, or 99. I went to an exhibition at the Royal College of Art in London, and I remember it was, uh, it must've been the degree show in, which they have in June or so. And I remember experiencing these, these objects, these screens uh, that didn't really do much until I did something, right? So mm -hmm. there would be like a, a sort of bridge that brought you into the experience, but then it was, it was a really strange experience to then do something and it reacted to you and then you reacted back to it and then this kind of loop went on sort of feedback loop this kind of conversation between you and it and having you know been brought up on a, a sort of um diet of broadcast media you know television film radio it was a it was a new phenomenon to me it was it was really it was this was something new it had a completely new dimension to it mm -hmm. so did you study afterwards did you study interaction design after you was that the inspiration, the exhibit? 
Yeah, I, well, I did eventually go, uh, I did apply to the Royal College, I think about a year later, and I got onto the program there. And back then it was called uh, Computer Related Design. And it was headed uh, by a woman called Gillian Crampton Smith, who's still in education, I believe. And she had some amazing uh, staff as well. I remember Rory, who was awesome, Tim, uh, other people. But anyway, what was what made it really unique was that Gillian put together artists and designers into the same space. So we all had these real mix of ex previous life experience. Some of us had actually had our own businesses or startups. Uh, others, you know, I had like lots of making skills or whatever. People came from like music backgrounds, uh, performance. And it was really this kind of melting pot that enabled us to critique each other in a way that you wouldn't if you were amongst people that all had a sort of similar mindset. Mm -hmm. And so the work that came out, I think we were, I mean, we were really kind of challenging with each other um, and we're still in touch. We still, we still um, talk to each other. It was just a, yeah, it was a, I think it, it was a life-changing experience to, to go through that. Yeah. Then you came to us and that's where you working here yeah eventually i came to the us um my my boyfriend at the time was a designer for levi's jeans and i think it was more to do with levi's that brought me over here so i for years i got free levi's jeans sounds amazing yeah <laughs> it was it was good yeah so i i know a lot i learned more than i should about denim yeah it was it i came over here i think it was oh wow 18 19 years ago and i really wanted to work with this company i'd worked with in london for their main new york office for a gentleman called Ralph Applebaum, who, who kind of defined the space at the time um, of museum exhibit design. It wasn't really a discipline that had been created. He's known for the Holocaust Museum in DC. That was one of his original projects. And I noticed that nobody was really doing, well, there was a little bit of interaction design, but I really wanted to bring that, that discipline to, to his services. So mm -hmm. yeah, eventually I, I headed back east to, mm -hmm. to New York. I remember when I was talking to you, now I remember when I was talking to you at CCA when I was graduating, I was really interested in designing in design and art for healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I was really, I remember I was so impressed and inspired by your installations for hospitals at that time, for children. I remember there was an interactive installation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I, you may be referring to a project we did for Nemours Hospital in Delaware. It's a new building. It was a million square foot building. And they asked us to create an experience that would basically put families and their children who were in a kind of stressed, uncomfortable situation to put them at their ease and to create a sort of moment of play where adults could play with children. People could have experiences that might last a few seconds or a few minutes or maybe even an hour. When you're working in a design agency, the way you often get work is through a kind of design competition, right? It's one that you often don't get any kind of funding for. It's usually a risk. And we just love the idea of this project. So we took a big gamble and we, we created this great proposal. Well, it was a great amount of work, let's say. And we got the project and they turned out to be this amazing client. So we basically created a, it's kind of like a landscape that was 50 feet wide out of these flat screens. And by walking up to the wall, it would see your body and you would become represented in this scene. And you could combine these floating seeds together that were in this landscape to create new plants. And by creating, uh, it's a bit like sort of the way DNA works. So if you combine different species together, you get a new one. And we did this because they wanted this thing to 
evolve over time to always be different. And so we made that evolution sort of integral to its, mm -hmm. its, its design. So these plants would grow and you would use your body to um, deflect sunshine or create rain. Uh, you'd nurture the plants. And then we had this cast of like cute, crazy characters that were actually based on interviews with the children. So we tried to create characters that would somehow relate to the way they were mm -hmm. feeling. Mm -hmm. um, so th those were brought into the scene too. So it was a complete flight of fantasy, but it was just one of those projects where your imagination just keeps rolling and rolling. So when you have those uh, installations, right, from museums, from hospitals, do you ever get a chance to see, actually see people interacting? You know, you're there, they don't know, you're the designer. Have you ever, oh no, once it's installed, you're out of it. Do you ever see people interacting with your work? Yeah, you know, the most of, the, of what you're talking about happens in the studio when you're making it and mm -hmm. you're testing it, right? So right. I think in that case, we had nurses or rather people mm -hmm. that sort of specialize in aftercare, surgery aftercare. So, mm -hmm. so physical therapists, for example, they would right. come to the studio and they would tell us whether the movements we were encouraging were actually healthy uh, to children okay. and, and how inclusive they might be of mm -hmm. different kinds of children's uh, capabilities. Um, but... Unfortunately, what really happens is that by the time the project is installed, you're on to the next project. So mm -hmm. it's, yeah, you're right. I think that, um, well, one thing we can do is because we're using cameras a lot, we can watch and monitor behavior. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of, we have that sort mm -hmm. of portal. But usually, yeah, it's really in development where we make the most observations. You know, when I was uh, at my video in a media biennale in Wrocław in Poland a few years ago, I was lucky I could go and actually see the work when it was installed. I really liked seeing the interaction, how people interact with the screen. For me, I'm always focused on the screen. So it's very different suddenly see the work being part of the environment and actually people interacting. Yeah. That watching, that observation is, uh -huh. is essential to doing interaction mm -hmm. design, right? Because right. We, we can't predict actually how people will behave. We kind mm -hmm. of have a sense of it, mm -hmm. um, but we have to test these things mm -hmm. as prototypes to just sort of capitalize on yeah. what we observe. Yeah, and I think especially with healthcare, like that particular project you were talking about for the hospital, you in a way had some sort of probably expectations what the movement should be. Like you said, there were physical therapists, they would tell you maybe this is not the right movement, right? Because it might not be healthy. Mm -hmm. But there was some, you were encouraging movement that would be actually beneficial for a child or a grown up. So yeah, for example, like uh, stretching movements were generally good. Mm -hmm. um, you could make a rainbow just by making a sort of rainbow gesture. That was a nice, easy one, okay? Um, but uh, if a child could only move one arm, then we still had to allow them to enable them to make that same rainbow otherwise. I want to talk more about your work and your current projects and your very unusual projects, like the one that had to do with lighting, and I think you know what I'm talking about, it has to do with your trip to Mexico. But before we get there, I just want to mention something because I didn't know you went to Canterbury Art School. Am I correct? Is it Canterbury Art School? Canterbury, yes. Yeah, in Kent. And yeah. I'm assuming it was really in an actual Canterbury. It's where Chaucer... Yes, yes. I, I'm a big fan of Chaucer. <laughs> Canterbury Tales. So is Canterbury, it? Is it yes. So it's there. It was there. Yes, we kind of trod the ground that the Miller, the other characters from the Canterbury Tales would have trod, yeah. I visited Canterbury years ago before I moved to US. And I visited Canterbury because I loved Chaucer and Canterbury Tales. 
But I want to tell you something about Canterbury. You lived there, so you, you might know that. But I learned something very special. I was walking, feeling very happy, exploring Canterbury and thinking of Chaucer. And I walk into this antique store. I loved maps. And it was this tiny antique store, I remember. And there was this older gentleman working there. And he asked me where I was visiting from. And he seemed quite grumpy. But I told him I was from Poland. And he says, well, you know... We were from Poland, but do you know this writer, Joseph Conrad? And I said, of course I know Joseph Conrad. And he said, well, if it's true, tell me his Polish name. So I said, Józef Kozaniowski. And then, you know, that was another level of respect I got. And there was no grumpiness anymore. But what I learned, what happened, he said, you know what? He's buried at the cemetery here. I discovered that Joseph Conrad was buried there. So that's my story of Canterbury. So it wasn't just Chaucer. It was also Joseph Conrad, Józef Kozienowski. So anyway, I just wanted to bring it up because it's very special for me. I feel like you know more about Canterbury than I do. I, I had no idea. Yeah. It, yeah, I was very excited about it. It's yeah. a medieval town. It, it has this wall that surrounds it that kind of defines it. It's in, they call it the Garden of England because it's the warmest part of the UK. I have to be honest, I was ready to get out of Canterbury at the end. I read, was ready to move to London. Yeah, the big bright lights of London after yes. a little provincial. You were a student, yeah. so I understand I was, that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you were there for different reasons. I was there for a few days. You were there for a bit longer, I'm assuming. Back to a little bit cooler San Francisco. That's where you live right now. I'm teaching at CCA again, and I've seen some projects you shared with my students when you were a guest speaker just over a month ago or maybe a couple months ago at SCAD in Savannah. So I wanted to ask you about your unusual projects. And what I mean by unusual, well, you know, how would I define that? Not the typical interaction design projects or digital technology projects. And you do like, like you said, combining analog materials with digital technology. There is one particular project I wanted you to talk about, if you don't mind. That's the one when you actually combined some human aspect, literally a human part. Can you talk about that? And that project got an award. Uh, yeah, I think you're referring to an artwork called Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Yes. Okay, so that, well, it's called Mad Dogs. I guess it'll become evident in a moment as to why, but it's after the song by Noel, Noel Coward in which Mad Dogs and Englishmen go out into the midday sun. So there's the clue, right? So yes, so that piece began life in Mexico. I was on a beach in Acapulco, I think it was. It was a nudist beach. And being the kind of like Englishman, I was desperate for it all over tan. I was like, I'm going to get a tan and I'm going to lay down on my front on this beach and I'm going to... No matter how much this hurts, I'm going to get this tan. So I kind of, you know, like any Englishman, I think the French call us Le Rose Beef for a reason. But we were, I went bright red and actually almost, I guess you could call it third degree burns. But a few days later, I was in the shower and the skin just shed off my butt. It came off in huge pieces, which actually is kind of, it's a bit like having a loose tooth. It feels kind of nice. Sounds very painful. In a slightly, yeah, painful, pervy way. But it, it came off in these pieces. And I guess being like having had the experience of being like a poor art student all those years, I knew never to throw away a good material, hang on to it. And so I kept the skin, I kept it rolled up in journal I was carrying with me. And then months later, got back to the UK and I discovered that you could unwrap skin. It wouldn't stick to itself. So I gently unpeeled all of the skin and... 
I glued it to some glass and made a map of the world using a surgeon's scalpel. I think I spent about three months doing that. At the time, by the way, I was doing architectural model making. So I had the kind of mentality for getting into this infinite detail. But anyway, I carved away at it and then I mounted it on a light box so you could see the natural topography of the skin come through. So you have this kind of map now of the world where like you would see a map that shows the mountains and the valleys, now they're built out of skin. And I did this, well, partly as a kind of a joke on myself, my stupid white English behavior, but also as I was traveling, it's funny, I've been thinking recently about how little English historical education taught us about colonialism. And it wasn't until I was traveling that I got a sense of, oh, England has a past over here, or Europe has a past over here. So for me, that skin was a material that had a story, right? And it was the story that became important. And it was the story of, kind of to me, it was the story of this post-colonial tourist going off to a country that had been colonized by white skin. Admittedly, it was the Spanish back then, but we're all part of the same movement. And yeah, it was made as a joke, I suppose, on my own stupidity. But then fast forward a few years later, and I entered it to a competition with the French consulate here in San Francisco. And I thought this would be a good space to show this because of the role of a consulate is there to greet other countries, to represent other countries abroad. And thank goodness the consul at the time, Emmanuel, had a good sense of humor and he liked the piece and he, it, it's actually been hanging in the lobby to the French consul's residence there for about five years now. Well, that's very impressive. And I saw the piece and it looks amazing. I don't think you would recommend anyone to copy that piece or repeat what you did because that sounds like a painful creative process. <laughs> But I asked you to talk about it because somebody might get an idea of your work when you talk about interaction design, you know, what work you do, but your work is very versatile and your creativity seems to be infinite, I would say. And I always appreciate your sense of humor. I think it's always impressive to see sense of humor, creativity coming together and amazing skills. You never know what can come out of a project that nobody hired you to do that project. That's what I'm trying to say. It was a project you just decided to do. And then you enter the competition and you want it. And now this project is on display. Especially when I talk to my students, I always say, you know, not all the projects, we know where they end up. And those projects that are passion projects or little things can become really big things. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned sense of humor. I almost forgotten that aspect of it. I think that I should be making more work, actually, now I think about it, that has like a sense of humor. Things can be a little, when things are a bit too earnest, I think people can switch off. Whereas humor is like a gateway into, oh, I'm actually going to listen and engage. Yeah. Right. I think sense of humor and storytelling, they really go well together. Well, okay, now, I mean, I'm not saying we are going to abandon sense of humor, but let's chat about your current projects. And also, I would love to hear about your uh, happy accidents when it comes to creating work, because that was really the main topic during your visit. Uh, happy accidents? Success. Yeah, happy accidents when it comes to your work. Because very often when we talk about accidents, we have an idea of what we want or what we are working on and the accident happens, it's easy to abandon it. I myself work very often with accidents. Not all of them will make it to my work, but obviously I remember your presentation. You really gave us great examples at that time during your talk about how you take advantage of happy accidents or how those happy accidents really impacted your work in a very meaningful way. Yeah, actually it was, it was interesting putting that 
talk together because for me it was an opportunity to link together projects over 20-25 years that cross both art and design right and I hadn't done that before and it made me think a bit more about how as designers we try to be very much in control of the process using all of these different methods and methodologies there's also a space for creativity sometimes I feel like the most creative things emerge more out of a a mistake or an opportunity in which you allow the subconscious to bubble up. And it's kind of intention a bit with having a design process, having a client, having a deadline, having to make things that work. So as I was putting that together, it got me thinking, when have there been moments in which something completely unexpected or unplanned has emerged and has become actually the, the biggest idea in what I've ended up making? So the skin piece, we just talked about that, right? That, that, was, that was an accident that was not happy mm-hmm. at all. It was a quite an unpleasant, painful accident that became a happy accident because I kept the skin. I kept it for mm-hmm. like a later opportunity. The idea didn't like emerge till later. So it was almost like I put it in a kind of mental archive or Rolodex and I saved it for mm-hmm. later on. So there's, there's that way of just hanging on to stuff and, and keeping them at hand for when inspiration maybe strikes. But more generally, I think like, right, so right now I, I'm working on a project that also began with a, a happy accident in which I'm created a, I guess you'd call it like an immersive installation that creates words out of a layer, a, a mirror black layer of magnetic oil. And it does this using 180 rare earth magnets fitted on pistons, electric pistons that move up and down independently. And this whole thing began with this experiment in which I got a, a magnet, what's called a rare earth magnet. They're the very powerful magnets. And I put it under a Petri dish of magnetic oil. And I saw that the oil, basically it's trying to follow these lines of invisible magnetic flux. And it creates this mound covered in these fetishistic black spikes. And then when you pull the, the magnet away, the mound dissipates and disappears, almost like resetting the medium. And so it made me think that, ah, that, that segment, that line could become part of a letter or a number. And so with several of these together, or a lot of them, I could actually write words out of oil. So that's, that kind of began with that experimentation. And so there my process was kind of extrapolation from that happy accident. And it kind of snowballs from there. So this is what you are working on right now. Yeah, I've been working on it for some time. I, I had I got kind of stuck with it for a while. I got stuck with it technically. I had some technical problems that meant I couldn't move forward very easily with it. And because of the way I work, I have to see something, do something in order to know what I think about it. So I have to prototype an experience, stand back, reflect, and I just know within a few seconds if it's working. And I know there might be an opportunity to move this way or that way with it. But I have to do that like hard work of setting up the experiment in order to let the accidents emerge. But yeah, I got over this, this hurdle. And so for the past few months, I've been developing a process for building sequences using this machine. I should say that the layer of oil is only half of the installation. If you imagine a 10 foot wide by three foot across black mirror of oil at waist height, it's sort of inset into a uh, aluminum table. Above your head at about six foot, just above your head is a, a screen that is about 10 foot by nine foot. That is a, a rear projection screen and Above that is a video projector. And so vision is caught between these two horizontal surfaces. So your your peripheral vision is all contained within the space. 
And what you see is the reflection of the image that is above your head reflected into the oil below at your waist height. But because image is above your head and the oil is at your waist, the way the optics work is that the image appears to be below your waist, sort of below the ground level. So under the light, uh, lighting conditions, you create this illusion of peering into a void, into a sort of infinite space. And so the oil becomes both like a screen, like a, a screen that has this kind of infinite depth, but then it sort of pops out into these words that break that illusion and you have these words that appear on the surface. So what I'm doing, so so you can, it's, I know it sounds complicated and it was complicated figuring out how to build sequences for this thing. But now what I'm doing is creating sequences that really explore what the expressive potential is of this medium. And you are the one building, right? I will call it machine. Yeah, this is where the model making comes in handy. All those years, like walking into a studio and not knowing mm -hmm. how on earth to do something and then figuring out on the job. That's kind of how I approach this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a, there was a lot of engineering involved. There's some parts that, because I've got moving pistons, they have, there's quite tight tolerances around that. I had to um, design circuit boards and print those. So there's a lot of electronics. I was helped actually being in the bay area is a great space for doing stuff like this because there's a good community or communities of people that love to hack and tinker and build things that haven't been built before so there's a good network here in mm -hmm. the bay area of engineers software engineers and i met a few of those people through a group called Dorkbox, which is paraphrases people doing strange things with electricity so i've had some help in like the areas where i get stuck like i can do electronics to a degree but design a circuit from mm -hmm. a schematic well before a schematic that is hard so i get help yeah i had a friend uh, steven uh, steven brach do the software that actually creates the sequences for the letterpress for example but yeah the whole building part that was that was me and and, and some friends coming in to help now and then I actually got to see a little bit of that. I call it the machine. I like to call it the machine. But I also got to see a little preview that you generously shared with me and my students. And you shared it at the end of your presentation. And I don't know if you remember, but there was silence and we were all in awe, very inspired. But it was really hard to say something. We just were kind of left speechless. Is there a preview that our listeners can actually get a little bit of that experience? Is this particular project available online? I know it's not complete yet. Yeah, so the sequence you're referring to, I, that is from a poem by a poet called Jane Hirschfield. It's called Let Them Not Say. And it's an extraordinary poem. I've read it many times over and it still creates something new in me every time I read it. It's, it's very enigmatic and it kind of, it, hits, it has a sort of a subject. It's hard to define what the subject is, but I, you kind of know what it is. It's more about the voice. So it's, it's Jane's poem is read by an actor friend, Gio, who did this, just this great reading. And I filmed him with a, a 3D depth camera. So what is seen in the oil is kind of like a, a geometric structure of his face as, as he's speaking. The film has, it's been documented. I could share you the link. I'm not sure when this podcast is going out, but my website is very, very nearly ready to go out. So maybe it'll be ready by then. Great. Will we be able to see eventually? Will it be an installation at the museum? Where would you like to? See it. Yeah, I, I would like to show it in the Bay Area before it, it travels any distance. I've spoken with a curator in a museum in Brazil, but where the focus is on the stories around the, let's say, the Anthropocene. But I would like to show it in galleries here in the Bay Area. Actually, I'm starting to only just 
put word out to curators. Hopefully it'll be on someone's radar before long. I'm looking forward to visiting the exhibit, first of all, also because we've been deprived of human contact and visiting museums was non-existent actually for over a year. So I'm really enjoying now being more out and about and seeing art. Since I saw the preview, and I'm talking about the poem again, I'm referring to that part, I would really love to see it in person. Yeah, well, it's, it is kind of perverse making a video documentary of a piece that is meant to be off screen. So it's strange to me to even share it in that way. Like you can smell mm -hmm. the oil, for example, mm -hmm. with this, this thing, you can, mm -hmm. you can stand over the edge of it and see your own reflection. You can move your body around it and it looks different from different angles. You can't even see the image mm -hmm. as before you, until you walk right up to it. So, and the illusion of depth is, is really hard to even get with, with film because the camera lens, you know, you have to fake that change in focus yeah. or there's a lot that doesn't come across in film. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing it yeah. in a gallery because yeah. people get a, I have had people over to my studio and they have a very sort of visceral reaction to it it draws your attention right in i think there is a personal relationship and I, again i talk about machine and human but it's about the experience user experience i can even talk about i think <laughs> so i am hoping to visit bay area when you have your installation on this come on over that would be a great excuse to come and visit san francisco the bay area so any plans for summer is it all hard work for you because you're teaching right so you have a little bit break i'm assuming between teaching classes is it all now creative process or any travels and any more skin that might be peeling off for another project you know, i i do think about doing a 2.0 version of that except the idea would be I would paint, I think, skin factor 50 onto my butt this time, and I would just print using the sun. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that might but, be less painful. Well, almost as painful, but less work. Yeah. Oh, less work. <laughs> oh, it's uh, working smart. But yeah, I'm really trying to work on this piece. It is a little bit of a slow process because of the way there are all these layers of technology. So, you know, just to make a three minute sequence takes about three weeks. So I really don't have very many options. Yeah. Well, after this talk, I might actually go back to, I have actually Chaucer's Canterbury tale next to me on my shelf. So maybe I'll go back to that because you made me think of Canterbury. Now I have another reason to think of Canterbury. Well, Graham, thank you so much for finding some time to chat with me and educate me some more on your really inspiring and very creative work. Does your project have a name, the latest project you're working on? It kind of has a name right now. Like, so the machine that creates the words is called the magnetic letterpress, like you would have like printer's letterpresses, right? But mm -hmm. I don't know that that'll be the name eventually. I think it'll find its own identity as the work develops, mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm saving that to later. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ayleta. It's, it's, it's good to hear you and see you. Thank you for listening to the Crazy Bird Podcast. The Crazy Bird Podcast is hosted by Violeta Kaminska. Our guest for this episode was Graham Plum. You can find Graham's work on his website at grahamplum.uk. Our theme music is inspired by Tambourine by French composer François-Joseph Gossec. The improvisation is performed by Agnieszka Kowalik. Nature sounds were recorded by Violeta Kaminska. This episode was recorded, edited, and produced by Violeta Kaminska.